your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now we are continuing our study through the Old Testament. Currently now in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to cover verses 1 through 8. And when Paul started the book of 1 Corinthians, he was dealing with a a problem church. There were a lot of things going on inside the church that needed to be dealt with. And so Paul's taking them on one by one. And what he's going to deal with today is Christians taking Christians to court. Now, a born-again believer in Jesus Christ is the freest man or woman you could imagine. But when we come to Christ, as Jesus said, if you have been set free, you are free indeed. But when we come to Christ, we willingly limit our freedoms by becoming a, a, a Christian. So the servant's freedom, our freedom is limited by what will please the master, Jesus Christ. Even though, like Paul said, I am free to do anything. But not everything is necessary, nor will everything that I have the freedom to do please Jesus. So again, in a way, we willingly limit our freedom... By doing those things that will please Christ. In the Christian's freedom, he says, I will not do anything, even though I have the right to do it, if it's not going to be pleasing to my Lord. And Jesus is our example. In John 8, 29, Jesus said, I always do those things that please the Father, that please Him. And this is the Apostle Paul's concern here in chapter 6. There's only one thing a person can do in order to become a new creature in Christ. And that is believe in Christ. And then he'll receive, that person will receive eternal life. But when you have to make a choice between what's allowed, but it's not the best for your personal growth. And for the commendable behavior in front of others, then your choice becomes a hard one. And this is why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because he wants to guide us in the choices that we make in our life of belief. And these choices will have consequences that we don't have any control over. And the hope for this book is that we'll learn to think about the consequences before we make the choices. So this is the challenge of 1 Corinthians 1. We are free to make our choices, but we are not free to change the consequences of our choices, of our decisions. And we have to always remember, we can choose the choice, but we can't choose the consequences. Many times we make the choice, and then the choice makes us. So Paul's message is that the Christian has duties rather than rights. And carrying out these duties is is what brings joy. Now, diligence in doing one's duties affects not only his own life, but the life of others. The things that we choose to do, the choices that we make, not only affect ourselves, but they affect those around us. They affect others. 
<clears throat> so, in studying and finishing this chapter, you'll say, not what is my right to do, but what is my duty to do as a Christian. And in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul pointed out the new faith that we have in Jesus Christ, and it should give us a feeling of unity and purpose. And Paul pointed out in, every, in very clear words that the divisions and the quarreling that he dealt with in the first four chapters in the church, those things were contrary and harmful to the new faith. And then in chapter 5, he was dealing with sexual immorality. He pointed out the principle that the new faith produces a new morality in contrast to the sexual immorality that he had to deal with and that was going on in the church. And this new morality wasn't based on human wisdom, but it was the result of God's revealed truth of himself in Christ. Now he moves into chapter 6. Paul now talks about the problem of lawsuits among Christians, that is, members of the church. And he, he's asking them to settle their problems among themselves within the church fellowship rather than taking somebody, uh, especially a believer, to unchristian courts and, and standing before unchristian judges to make decisions for you. And then after showing them how foolish it is for Christians to take each other to heathen courts, Paul warns them against the danger of falling back into sin. And he's mostly concerned about the sin of fornication because that seemed to be a serious problem in the church of Corinth. And then he ends this section by reminding the Corinthians of the inspiring truth that they were, in reality, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul felt that the church of Corinth was losing its spiritual strength within and it was losing its influence on the outside. Reaching people for Christ. And for one of many reasons, one of the many reasons for loss of strength and influence was the spectacle of Christians becoming spectacles to the world and in the wrong way. Members of the church parading without shame their differences before the public courts. Let's, let's read verses 1 through 4 and then we'll go uh, down verse by verse. 1 through 4 in chapter 6. Paul says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous, and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are less esteemed by the church to judge? You see, to Paul, the church was a body of believers in Christ. And the special relationship, the special union that they had should be marked by fellowship with man as well as worship for God. Again, verse 1. Paul said, there any of you have a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Paul is saying here, settling your differences with each other is better than having pagan courts make the decisions for you. He says in verse 1, if any of you have a dispute, how dare you go before heathen judges to settle the matter? 
So Paul's question here was kind of abrupt. It, it, it's an outburst of, of being angry, and it's an angry and annoyed feeling that he has because they were taking each other to court. One commentator suggests that Paul's language is a sign that, he's, that, he, that he considered public lawsuits as treason against a Christian brother, that, that, that the brothers betrayed his fellow brother. In other words, you tell everybody else your feelings except the person or persons who you have those feelings against. Paul knew that there would be differences between Christians. And the phrase here, having a matter against another, means a cause for trial or a case. But the thing that Paul was against was the growing number of Christians who were taking their problems and differences and airing them out in heathen courts. The words to go to law is an attempt to have a verdict decided or to seek for a judgment. So the people involved took the initiative to take their problems to court. And then these lawsuits were between fellow believers, not between Christians and those outside the church. Jesus had already laid down the principle that his followers were supposed to follow to settle their disputes, their differences between each other. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 39 and 40. But now I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap your left cheek too. And if, any, and if someone takes you to court, to, uh, I'm sorry, if, and if someone takes you to court to, use you for, uh, to sue you for your shirt, let him have your cloak as well. Solomon said in Proverbs 25, 8 through 10, don't be too quick to go to court about something you've seen. If another witness later proves you wrong, what will you do then? If you and your neighbor have a difference of opinion, settle it between yourselves and don't discuss what someone told you in private. Otherwise, everyone, who will, learn, everyone will learn that you can't keep a secret and you'll never live down the shame. So he is saying, Paul is saying, keep problems between you and your neighbor. Try to settle them out of court. Now, somebody might say, well, what about Paul? You know, he went to the Roman court back in Acts chapter 28. Yes, he did. But you see, it wasn't against another brother. He wasn't taking a fellow Christian to court. He was going to court for the sake of the ministry, to save the ministry. The word unrighteous in verse 1 uh, meaning unjust, doesn't, didn't necessarily mean that you couldn't get a fair trial in the civil courts. But when you look at the trial of Jesus with Pilate and the record of the public courts regarding the Christians, it was a pretty sad picture when it came to their justice. Christian fellowship would call for a hearing in matters of everyday life before the saints. Now here, you notice, Christians here are given a title of honor and dignity. Paul calls them the saints, which means the holy ones. In other words, God had separated, from, separated them from the world. God took these, saved them, and took them out of the world. You know, uh, from being a part of the world. In the world, but not of it. And he provided for them a holy life in Christ. He gave them wisdom. He gave them power. In other words, so why should those that God has honored like this, who God had given wisdom and power, 
Why should they stand before ungodly men who don't have this wisdom and power in God or those, these men who don't recognize any God or judges who base things on impersonal evidence and technical details? The Christian church, on the other hand, operates as a personal, united group that lives according to the motives of mercy, love, and caring concern for one another. So you see, Christian mediation was better than having a pagan's pagan's verdict. Look at verse 2 now. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge even the smallest matters? He says, don't you know that one day you, God's people, are going to judge the world? And so if you're to judge the world one day, aren't you capable of judging even the smallest matters? The Corinthians faced a choice, either of measuring up to their spiritual potential or lowering themselves to carnal procedures or man's ways of doing things. The Christian has an amazing potential. And Paul points it out in verse 2 about judging angels and judging the world. The question is, Paul said, do you not know? Do you not know? And these words, do you not know, is used ten times in the Corinthian letters, but only three times in Paul's other writings. The Corinthians were either carnally unconcerned, they, were, they, they either didn't care about their spiritual potential, or they were ignorant of their unique destiny that they had in Christ. So the way Paul thought was that believers are to be partners with Christ in ruling the whole world. Jesus said of the apostles in Matthew 19, 28, that they should sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is extended here to all Christ's followers, to all Christians. 2 Timothy 2, 12 says, just as the faithful will reign with Christ as kings. In Revelation 22, 5, John says, so, they, so shall they sit, that is Christians, so shall they sit with him, Christ, as judges of the world. The word world there includes all of those who have rejected the call of the gospel. Another way of saying what verse 2 here says is, don't you realize that you, the future judges of final destinies and the mediators of eternal matters, are able to make decisions regarding routine matters of life? The truth that Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthian church is that in the end, the heathen is going to come under God's judgment that all Christians are going to take part in. So he's saying, and don't you think it's rather strange that these same heathens that you're going to judge with Christ are the same ones that you're going to to have them settle your arguments? Verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels how much more things that pertain to this life? Not only will the redeemed believers assist Jesus in ruling the world, they're also going to take part in the judgment that's pronounced on angels. Angels are the highest order of beings under God as things now exist. Yet they are part of the universe and the believers in Christ. So we should be able to solve disputes among ourselves. Verse 4. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint 
those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Again, Paul says, in such matters that come up, are you going to take them to be settled by people who have no standing in the church? Paul was concerned about the spiritual influence of the church. He felt that Christians should totally avoid lawsuits. But if they found it necessary to set up court panels to deal with the everyday affairs of this life, then he said, let them set up as judges the least esteemed by the church. The least esteemed. Now, there are different interpretations of the least esteemed, but the basic meaning is clear. When Christians have earthly quarrels and disputes among each other, it's unthinkable that those who will rule eternally should try to settle them through public courts and by believers and judges who are of no account in the church. If two Christians can agree between themselves, they should ask fellow Christians to settle the matter for them, like arbitrators. But they should also be willing to accept and live by that decision. Paul is saying here, the poorest equipped believer, all right, the poorest equipped Christian, though who seeks the counsel of God's word and spirit, is a lot more competent to settle disagreements between fellow Christians than the most highly trained and experienced unbelieving judge who doesn't have the truth of God. And that's because we're in Christ. Christians rank above the world and even above angels. And by settling our own disputes, we give a testimony of our resources and of our unity, harmony, and humility to the world. When we go to public court, our testimony, it, it's stained. You know, think about it. When, when, when the world looks on and they see Christians battling with Christians, Christians taking each other to court, what kind of a, a, you know, a testimony is that to the world? They look at, look at, Christians can't even get along. You know, they're, they're, they're fighting each other. They're taking each other to court. They're acting just like the world. Why would they want anything to do with the Jesus Christ that we proclaim, who's the answer to everything, and he is? Not a, not a good witness testimony. And that's the thing that, that, that Paul was, was dealing with here. You know, we go to public court and we, we air out our differences and we, we get angry and we, we yell at the other person or vice versa. And man, the testimony is shot. Look at verses five through six. Paul says this, I say this to your shame or shame on you. Is it so? That there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Lawsuits, Paul is saying here, are a disgrace to the church. Paul was concerned for the spiritual growth of the church. And for the impact of the church on the world. We are to have an impact on this world. Paul knew that church members suing each other was a sign of spiritual weakness and disgrace. Paul wrote this in, in, in verse 5. He says, I say this to shame you. And then he asks them, is it really true that there's nobody wise enough in all of the church to decide these arguments, to settle these arguments? 
Can it really be true that this church, again, who was so proud of its wisdom, who boasted of its many gifts and talents, and boasted of its higher spirituality, not one there could even find one person wise enough and fair enough to settle disputes. Then the second part of the question would be just as embarrassing to the Corinthians. Paul said, was there not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? The kind of problems causing these lawsuits seemed to be such that a person was needed to decide between conflicting moral issues rather than to judge legal crimes. And the reason for these questions was to bring the Corinthians to their senses, to get them to think about what they were doing, to think it out. You know, thinking that they were so smart, thinking they were so smart was a cutting question. And then the end of Paul's shaming accusation came in the next thing that he said. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Brothers take a brother to court and they do all of this in front of unbelievers. It's really sad when differences come between church members. But even sadder is when when believers continue to parade these differences in front of a heathen court, you know, in front of of those that aren't believers. It's a disgrace in front of the world. This is what Paul is is making the point here. And the worldly judges of these worldly courts here are called unrighteous in verse 1. Now here in verse 6, they're called unbelievers. That is, they are men without faith. And they're going to judge these issues of faith between the believers. These pagan Faithless officials were deciding the legal cases according to technical details, their debating skills, or or the amount of evidence that was given. But Christians, on the other hand, they have to consider problems in the light of God's grace and in light of their being Christians and the personal fellowship that they have, as well as in the light of legal procedure. Verses 7 and 8. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Looking at the problem as a whole, Paul says here, there is an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another and the the word fault we get the word failure from the word fault it has a variety of meanings it might mean or it may mean the spiritual law sustained by the assembly because of their dispute disputes and habits of going to law or it may mean as falling short of their inheritance of the kingdom of god in verse 9 still another says it means more than a defect or a loss it's It's a clear spiritual defeat to those who go to court. Any of these three interpretations shows that that this church was in a state of spiritual decline and it was living way below its Christian potential. And then Paul, in these verses, gives the Christian method of settling problems. Now, when you read these, you think, man, this would be difficult. To rather accept being uh, cheated or, or to accept the loss of, of any money. Because that goes totally against our grain. 
That does not come natural. It's not what I want to do, and it's not what we do most of the time. And thus, part of the problem. He says here, notice, why do you not rather accept the wrong? There in verse 8. Just accept it. Let it be. Just accept the fault. Why do you, he says, and also, why do you not rather yourselves be cheated? In the New Living Translation, it reads like this. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Because we have rights. We have rights. Remember in the, in the beginning, we may have rights, but the things that we do are decided, will they please Christ? Standing up for our rights many times gets ugly. Because we have our rights, we get angry. We'll tell the hey, you know, I was here first, or, or you, know, I, you know, whatever it might be. And, and, and we just start, you know, it doesn't get very pretty when we stand up for our rights many times. Now, a Christian does not have to be misused or mistreated, all right? But in Paul's thinking, it was better to endure a wrong, just let it be, He says, or it's better to just take the financial loss than to suffer spiritual damage. Jesus himself teaches that the Christians shouldn't resist evil. We see that the Corinthians weren't spiritual enough to endure wrong for the sake of the gospel, but they were carnal enough to inflict injury to other people. And those who were being wronged weren't outside the church. They were their own fellow brothers or sisters. And this was contrary to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Matthew 5, 39 through 42. Paul also wrote in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. He said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy. Notice, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You see, Paul knew, Paul was concerned about the tensions and the conflicts that were surely to arise in the church. People dealing with people. You're going to have friction. You're going to have differences. But how we deal with those differences is the critical thing. And that's what Paul is is sharing with us here. And here in Ephesians uh, uh, 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul is, is giving us, the, the initial graces of unity. Paul, again, he's describing real Christ-like character in specific terms in verses 2 through 3. Let's, uh, let me read them to you again. He says, With lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering and bearing with one another in love. These, these are called the, the four graces of unity. The four graces of unity. 
the way to deal with conflict. He said, endeavoring to keep the unity. Endeavoring. The word endeavoring means, no, uh, means to spare no effort. In other words, whatever you have to do, whatever I have to do to keep the unity in, in the bond of, spirit, of the Spirit. If somebody wants to argue with me, I don't argue back. You know, if somebody wants to get crazy, I don't get crazy back. Sparing no effort, doing whatever I need to do to keep that, that, that bond of unity. Instead of the Corinthians showing Christian unity, they were guilty. They were guilty of total fraud. The Corinthian church was suffering a loss in dignity and honor. They were declining in their influence and in their respect. And the Corinthian church was weakening, weakening in its evangelical strength and its, in its witnessing to others. Who, who wants to listen to what I have to say when they see me acting like everybody else? There's no difference. The Christian way of avoiding lawsuits was to suffer loss instead of retaliating. That's what Paul's teaching us here. Christians who take fellow Christians to court lose spiritually. Notice, they lose spiritually even before the case is heard. Paul's telling them, if that's your intent and you're going to take somebody to court, you've already lost before you've even taken it to court. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Notice, now therefore, notice, it is already. Notice. And he's just telling them about, telling, about not taking brothers to court. But he says, if you're thinking of doing it, you've already lost. Maybe not the case, but he's talking about in spiritual things. Now, therefore, it is already an other failure for you that you go to law against one another. He's saying, you've already suffered a spiritual defeat. Because he's self-centered. And he discredits the power and the wisdom and the work of God. When he tries to get what he wants through the judgment of unbelievers. The right attitude of a Christian is to rather be wronged, to rather be defrauded, and that, than to sue a fellow Christian. It's better to lose financially than to lose spiritually. And that's why it's so hard, because this is against our nature. We don't want them to get away with it. We want, what we, 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 we don't, we just, it annoys us when we see somebody getting away with something. Especially when it's something that, that belongs to me. Even when we're clearly in the legal right. Paul is saying we don't have the moral and spiritual right to insist on our legal right in a public court. He says if a brother has wronged us in any way. Our response should be to forgive him and to leave the outcome of the matter in God's hands. Now the Lord may give or he may take away. He's sovereign. And he has his will. And he has his purpose. And he has his will and his purpose both in what we get and in what we lose. The Bible says he gives, he takes away. But it's not just a, 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 an arbitrary thing when you say, well, he gives and takes away. Well, you know, it makes it sound like God will. You no, know, it depends on what, he, what mood he's in. No. God gives and he takes away based on what is best for me. 
And a lot of times what's best for me, I don't understand because I don't know uh, many times the, the intimate will of God for my life. But I must trust him, knowing that whatever he does do for me, whether it's in a negative or positive way, it's his best thing for it's his best will for me. And if that's his best for me, then you know what? That's where I should, should just say, you know what? All right, Lord, you know what's best. Though I don't understand it and I may not agree with it, but in your infinite wisdom, God, that's what's best for me. So again, <clears throat> contrary, to, contrary to the world standards, it is better to be sued and lose than to sue and win. Spiritually, it's impossible for a Christian to sue and win. When we're wrongfully cheated, we are to cast ourselves on the care of God. We are to cast all of our cares upon God. Because he's able to work all things out for my good to his glory. And again, that's the whole purpose, whatever I do. Whether we eat, drink, or sleep, Paul said we are to do all to the glory of God. See, Jesus knows our needs. And Jesus will make sure that you and I have everything that we need. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. A Christian's biggest concern shouldn't be to protect his possessions or his rights, but to protect his relationship with his Lord and with his fellow believers. So in closing, we're just going to cover verses 1 through 6 here and we'll finish the chapter next time together. I'm sorry, 1 through 8. In closing, in Matthew 17, and I'm sure you all remember the story. It's It's one of those that are hard to forget. It's the miracle that Jesus did. In Matthew 17, remember Peter was questioned about his master paying the temple tax. Now, technically, Jesus didn't have to pay the, the tax. All right? He was, he, 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 you know, he didn't have to pay the tax. But for, but for, but for practical reasons, Jesus said, to Peter, look, we don't want to offend them. Pay the tax for both of us. Here was the Son of God, the Son of God, being questioned about paying taxes in which he didn't have to. But the Son of God said, hey, Peter, we don't want to offend them. And how much more should we take that, that position and follow that example? And so, the miracle took place. Peter, drop a line there in the sea and the first fish that you get, you'll pull the coins out of the mouth and, and pay the taxes for you and me. But he paid the taxes. And, and Peter's too. Why? So that their testimony wouldn't be hurt. There was no argument. There was no, hey man, it's my right, I don't have to pay taxes. He said, Peter, let's do it. For our good, for God's glory. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. Again, we thank you for this, this wonderful lesson, Father. Lord, and sometimes it's, it's really hard obeying God's word. 
and especially when it comes to possessions and money. We want what belongs to us and again, we need our money. But in, in taking that mindset, it's saying that God cannot provide the things that I need and that God can't provide the financial help that I need. And yet God is our sufficiency. He's our all in all. He takes care of us from the day of our birth to the day we enter the grave. And he takes care of us in between. And as Jesus said, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added to you. He knows what we need even before we ask for it. And so, Lord, we thank you for taking care of us, Lord. And you're a much better financial advisor than we are. And you have way more possessions than we do, but your possessions are for our good. The things that you have for us are for our good. So, Lord, help us to look to you for everything that we need to give you honor and glory in all that we do. And Father, we thank you for the offering we'll receive today, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your generosity. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.